0: THE CRISIS SURROUNDING RUSSIA'S INVASION OF UKRAINE SUDDENLY SEEMS EVEN MORE FRIGHTENING THAN BEFORE, AND PEOPLE HAVE BEGUN TO THINK THE UNTHINKABLE. THIS AS RUSSIAN PRESIDENT VLADIMIR PUTIN THREATENED THE WORLD AT LARGE, SUGGESTING PERHAPS THAT HE COULD BE READY TO USE NUCLEAR WEAPONS. RUSSIA'S THREAT OF NUCLEAR WAR IS ITSELF A WEAPON OF WAR, MEANT TO SCARE COUNTRIES LIKE THE U.S. INTO INACTION. Ever since this war started, there's been a lot of concern about Russia's nuclear arsenal and a lot of discussion about Ukraine's lack thereof. Why doesn't Ukraine have nuclear weapons? Well, it used to. Republican lawmakers are pushing for a 5% increase in defense spending in the fiscal year 2023 budget. The fact is deterrence failed in this case. We failed to deter Putin because we relied solely on sanctions and tweets. We did not put hard power, sufficient hard power in his path. Russia has invaded Ukraine for the second time in eight years. If Ukraine had kept those nukes, would they be in this situation? Today, on part two of our nuclear inheritance investigation, we're gonna take a look at Ukraine and whether or not it was right to give up its nuclear weapons following the fall of the Soviet Union. After the fall of the Soviet Union, new states were formed that housed massive nuclear arsenals, and the world was forced to deal with a new non-proliferation challenge. To whom did these weapons belong? Which of the former Soviet Union's coalition of separate states, cultures, and ethnicities were the rightful heirs to its security agreements, treaties, and nuclear legacy? Who is the rightful heir to its position in the world? Nukes of Hazard, a podcast by the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm Jeff Wilson, a researcher at the Center and your host. Like the experiences of Kazakhstan that we explored last episode, tough nuclear weapons questions were forced on the new nation of Ukraine in 1991, and the story of the decisions they were forced to make in a very short period of time about just what sort of country they wanted to be should be eye-opening for all of us. Now today, faced with the illegal invasion of the Russian Federation, their former partners in the Soviet Union, to whom they transferred thousands of nuclear weapons in exchange for guarantees on their future sovereignty, many have speculated that Ukraine would have been much safer if it had actually held on to those weapons and joined the ranks of the nuclear weapons states. But this simplification undercuts the courageous and conscious decision of what kind of nation Ukrainians decided to make for themselves in the early 1990s and what their continued dogged resistance means to the world today. To explore these issues further, we sat down with Mariana Bujarin.
1: Hi, I'm Mariana Bujarin. I'm a research associate with the Project on Managing the Atom at the Harvard Kennedy School Belfer Center. And I have a forthcoming book Uh, on the history of nuclear disarmament of Ukraine.
0: Outstanding, Mariana. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate your time. I think that this story, obviously, outside of the current context of what's happening in Ukraine, is already an incredible and amazing story. But given current events, it has taken on so much more significance and importance to exactly what is happening on the Hill and in the halls of power sort of around the world. So we really appreciate you being on. My first question is, in the history of nonproliferation, we have some incredible stories. But I think that truly the standout has been Ukraine and its decision to not just give up development of the bomb, but to actually give up weapons after the fall of the Soviet Union. I'm curious if if you could explain to our listeners what happened there, You know, just what sort of forces were actually in Ukraine in the early 90s.
1: So, yes, you're right. In 1991, what happens is quite unprecedented. There are five recognized nuclear weapon states in the world at that point in time. There's the United States, the Soviet Union, Britain, France and China under the Treaty on the Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons, Then PT. There is also Israel at that point, which we sort of know has nuclear weapons, but we really don't talk about it. And at the same time, there is South Africa that announces that it wants to join the NPT as a non-nuclear weapon state. And then we find out that it actually had uh, its own indigenously developed nuclear weapons program. It had six and a half nuclear weapons, and then it dis- dismantled them and, and got rid of them, right, and joined the NPT. So sort of this is now the background against which one of those nuclear powers, recognized nuclear weapon states under the NPT, fractures into a number of newly independent states. And four of those, Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, are left with shards of this gigantic nuclear arsenal on their territory. And the question becomes, well, how should we handle this unprecedented situation, right? There hasn't really been. Uh, kind of history or uh, political precedents that would help us navigate this situation. And there's this unchallenging, this taken-for-granted view, entrenched, well, everywhere you look, really, that Russia should be the one to succeed. The Soviet Union under the NPT. It has inherited the Soviet seat at the UN Security Council. So, in all, for all intents and purposes, Russia is really this main successor of the USSR. But that does not automatically mean that other states have no claim at all to whatever is left on their territory. And so in Ukraine in particular, for a variety of reasons, this contestation over this monopoly of claim on the Soviet nuclear arms is played out in a really interesting and in a really powerful way. So Ukraine starts its path towards independent statehood. Uh, and we often forget that. It starts its path with basically unilateral renunciation. So it was in, in July 1990, Ukrainian parliament, very already rather set on winning more power, more independence from Moscow, passes the Declaration of State Sovereignty. That's July 1990. That's a full year and a half before the Soviet Union actually collapses. And into this Declaration of State Sovereignty, it writes in Ukraine's intention to become in the future a neutral and nuclear free state that will not develop or receive nuclear weapons, something of the sort, right? At this point, nobody forced Ukraine to do that. That was fully uh, sort of uh, voluntary desire of the Ukrainian people. And the reason for this was twofold. It was Chernobyl. Right, the trauma of Chernobyl. There was a wide anti-nuclear sentiment. You know, all things nuclear were viewed as something imposed by the outside, by Moscow, and a sign of the negligence of the the kind of lack of humanity that that regime had historically demonstrated. And then there's also an understanding that. Soviet military, especially the strategic deterrent forces, strategic missile forces, and air uh, and sea-based deterrents, that system is hyper-centralized and super, super secretive, and that these are very tight command and control chains that basically tie Moscow, tie Ukraine and everything that's deployed in Ukraine to the central authorities in Moscow. And then there's understanding that unless you sever these military ties, Ukraine will not be able to attain full political independence. Well, history takes its own turns, right? History rushed ahead and the Soviet Union collapsed without the necessity to actually break up these military ties, right? And the Soviet military stays, stands intact as yeah, I like to think of it as the sort of exoskeleton, right, from which the political body had had vanished. But these structures, military structures are still in place. So in conventional realm, Ukraine uh, really launches very quickly already after declaring independence in August 1991, in in an effort to establish its own conventional military force out of whatever units of the Soviet military that were left on its territory. But there's a problem, right? There's this gigantic strategic military force and there's tactical nuclear weapons, third largest cache of these weapons in the world that's stationed in Ukraine. And the question becomes, well, what is to be done with that force?
0: Quick follow-up question. Like you said, there's three states that are left with Soviet nuclear weapons, right? There's Belarus, there's Ukraine, and there's Kazakhstan. Were these weapons, would they have been usable by these new states? Or was command and control still maintained someplace else?
1: So command and control was still firmly in the hands of Moscow. But in any technical sense, in any operational sense, the controls were such that it was basically Yeltsin had the launch authorization unit, the so-called briefcase, he had the codes, and he was uh, would have been in a position to authorize the launch uh, of a nuclear strike, even though the procedure for sort of consultations with others, sort of procedural veto, as it were, did exist, uh, was negotiated ultimately. However, Ukraine, in addition to these weapons, did inherit a rather impressive technological, scientific, and industrial capacity. It was home to one of the three main producers of missiles. Nuclear physics was actually on on quite a high level, and there was as we later found out, two or 300 kilograms of highly enriched uranium stored at the Institute in Kharkiv and Nuclear Institute in Kiev. So even though Ukraine did not inherit kind of a ready-to-use strategic deterrent, it inherited what I like to call a really generous proliferator package. And on top of it, what it also inherited, and where the crux of the contestation really resided over the next, you know, two, three years until 1994, when Ukraine made the decision to join the NPT, was over the claims of succession to the Soviet Union. So this monopoly on nuclear inheritance was extremely important for Russia then. It guarded it really zealously, and it did not accept any of Ukraine's claims that this was actually, even though Ukraine won it and stood by its determination to surrender these nuclear weapons uh, in the end, that it at least, as the the legitimate successor, the legitimate owners uh, of these assets, that it wanted to be fairly compensated. So much of the contestation was really not about whether Ukraine would grab operational control over the strategic arsenal nuclear weapons on its territory, but rather how this disarmament process would look like. So how did
0: Ukraine balance these internal and external pressures in this incredibly complex decision amidst incredibly uncertain times. I mean, just dealing with this idea of what is Ukrainian, these questions of what is Ukrainian versus what is Soviet. I I know even today, so many people oversimplify the idea of Soviet into Russian, despite the fact that Russia was this coalition of different states and ethnicities and cultures. But that there's this moment where not only is Ukraine becoming a new state, but has to take into consideration becoming the third largest nuclear weapons state and a pariah, or give up these weapons and have sort of a less concrete security or potential deterrence. This decision-making paradigm is just so complicated and was forced on a new country so quickly. And and I'm curious if you can just sort of walk us through how this happened and, and why they made the decision that they did there.
1: But what you're asking, Jeff, is like is exactly kind of the meat of the entire story, right? It's, um, it's instructive perhaps for other uh, cases of nuclear proliferation, right? When we look what drives, what motivates uh, uh, states to pursue nuclear weapons and what motivates them not to pursue nuclear weapons. So, as you mentioned, there's this great conflation of the Soviet Union and Russia. It has been throughout the Cold War. And actually, I'm I'm disparaged to see that it continues to this day, uh, right? Even on behalf of people who really should know better. But even in the mind of policymakers in Washington, I mean, there are more nuanced understandings, but there's this history of interacting with Moscow, there's decades of arms control talks, there's personal connections, but the West stays, you know, in Washington states largely blind to what is happening in the periphery of the Soviet Union up until the Soviet Union collapses. And then it's like, oh my gosh, there's all these nuclear weapons outside of Russia's territory. What do we do about it? And, you know, the Nuclear issue becomes number one priority in Moscow at that time. Suddenly capitals that didn't even exist on America in American mindset and American maps, Minsk and Almaty and Kyiv, they become destinations for all these high-level delegations from D.C. who are arriving and trying to say, what are you guys going to do with these nuclear weapons? And are you going to join the NPT as a Nuclear Weapons State? And Ukrainians in particular are somewhat taken aback. In a sense, that kind of overwhelming attention to the nuclear issue actually counterintuitively serves to elevate the value of these weapons as the kind of issue a great power will engage with you on. In that way, it becomes ultimately, you know, uh, eventually when the contestation gets rather controversial and even more bitter, it becomes the only lever <laughs> Ukraine essentially has to draw attention to its own security predicament. So Ukraine does find itself in a rather a dire security predicament, and right nothing really happens. And you know, we we look at the war today, and even then, it was it was difficult to imagine that something like that would eventually uh, happen. But you know, threats threats are such that they're easy to discount until they kind of come to fruition. And there was, you know, especially on the on the part of those politicians in Ukraine that were kind of fighting for Ukraine's independence from Moscow, the National Democrats, there's this understanding that Russia will, will remain a problem, right? And how do you use this nuclear in- inheritance? What are your options? Your, option is, your options are try and build up the nuclear program, right, and try and keep these weapons as a deterrent. So so then Ukraine also, what it it tries to balance is the security predicament on the one hand with the economic demands domestically, but also with the what kind of state it wants to be perceived as, right? It, It just escaped kind of the clutches, or at least that's the imagery, right? The clutches of this totalitarian empire. It does not want to be the North Korea or the Libya. It doesn't want to be a pariah it wants to be a good international citizen. And it's communicated to Ukraine in no uncertain terms that membership in the NPT is one way to do it. But the the longer Ukraine delayed, the more it was on the kind of ran afoul of, of Washington who really wanted to see this issue solved and quickly. Why? Because the coming into force of the START treaty, the very first one that was signed by Gorbachev and Bush on July 31st, 1991, the coming into force of that treaty was basically riding on Ukraine's decision. And so the whole fate of this seminal arms control treaty that took nine years, laborious years to negotiate, everyone else has ratified it. And the Russians said, This treaty will not go into force until Ukraine joins the NPT and everyone else in their instruments of ratification. So everything is riding on Ukraine. So there's all sorts of international pressures. And Ukraine feels that sort of these international political imperatives are not exactly taken into account its security imperatives, but it has to make a decision with very little leverage. And the decision becomes to agree to a deal that was essentially a good deal in the sense that it recognized this very important claim that Ukraine was making, that it is Ukrainian nuclear weapons that it's given up. And then the other part of the the deal, the compensation, is that on security assurances. And that's kind of a whole separate block of the deal, the the so-called Budapest Memorandum that is signed on the sidelines of the Conference on Cooperation Security Europe Summit on December 5th, 1994, in Budapest, and uh, is now known uh, as a famous or infamous, uh, depending who you ask, Budapest Memorandum
0: let's let's get into this piece a bit more and this is so fascinating i think that the fact of just how complex all of this decision making was how complex the scenario itself was and the international pressures that ukraine is feeling now to take an incredibly complex scenario and to vastly oversimplify it we have seen this this simplified narrative emerge today, and, and I'm sure it has emerged for a while, but especially in the context of what is happening, of the, the terrible invasion of Ukraine. And we've seen this narrative emerge that if only Ukraine had held on to these weapons, Russia would not have invaded. In fact, that they would have been deterred, that that is the purpose of nuclear weapons um, and that nuclear weapons you know serve that ultimately, and they're a good thing to have because of that, so Ukraine should have held on to them. Do you think that that is a valid argument? Um, you know, Because it, it seems to be everywhere in the media these days.
1: So on some very general level, uh, I think we have to recognize that if nuclear deterrence works for the United States, and if it works for Russia, and if it works for France, and if it works for Pakistan and India, that it probably would have somehow worked for Ukraine as well. But there's also a lot of truth to the fact that Had Ukraine under those circumstances back in the early 90s decided to hold on to nuclear weapons or to rather invest in a fully fledged nuclear weapons program based on its claim of succession right to the Soviet Union, that it would probably be a different kind of country today, that we can't just tweak that one variable. So when I look at this, the Ukrainian story and how it fits in the history of nuclear nonproliferation, the history of the nonproliferation regime and our understanding of what actually is achieved with our efforts to try and curb the spread of nuclear weapons around the world. We have been enormously successful in building up this regime, right? The NPT is is a real success story. on, on, many, on many levels. And in Ukrainian decision-making, it was hugely important because for Ukraine, joining the NPT was joining the international community, was joining the international order in good terms. The international nonproliferation regime now is in a somewhat more precarious state than it was back in the early 90s. Uh, on top of that, you have this real deep rift between nuclear haves and nuclear have nots. There's really deep tensions uh, within the NPT on that, that have culminated in the ban treaty, essentially, right? Because uh, nuclear weapon states are not viewed as pursuing their, as fulfilling their obligations under Article 6. So now against that background, you have one of the signatories of the so-called Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances to Ukraine, a country that had a nuclear option, let's let's call it that way, that was, you know, in Ukraine's view under international legal terms, a legitimate option, right? Um, You have one of the signatories and one of the NPT depository states, one of the states that claims legacy, to the state that created the NPT, right? Breach that agreement in the most kind of glib way, right? And prosecute a war against that country. The optics of that are really quite bad for the non-proliferation regime, to say the least. So whatever we think about the content, whether these were guarantees or assurances, and there's a lot of semantic um, kind of debates about exactly what was pledged, the fact that such a memorandum exists, that a country surrendered a nuclear option and joined the NPT with this memorandum in tow, and that Now, this this Budapest Memorandum became part and parcel of this broader regime. And now it's breached by a country that signed it and has been a stakeholder, a major stakeholder and a guardian of that regime for decades. It is extremely damaging, to say the least, to the credibility of that regime.
0: And I think this is fascinating because it sets up sort of another reason why Ukraine is exceptional, right? We, We find ourselves in this moment. Where Ukraine is under constant nuclear threat. And and I love the way that you phrase this, but you say that at stake in Ukraine is not just the future of that country and its people, but also something much bigger the future of nuclear nonproliferation. Um, for years, like you've talked about, and we, we saw through the Trump administration and even before, that this fear that nations and, and rogue nations are going to push for nuclear arms in an increasingly uncertain and threatening world where sort of the norms and values have fallen apart, right? And that they say, well, listen, the only thing that's going to keep the United States or Russia or whoever it is out of our sovereign territory is nuclear weapons. Like what if Saddam Hussein had actually built nukes, you know, or what if Gaddafi had decided to to keep his WMD program, would they still be in power? And all of a sudden, that seemed like a realistic scenario. But here in Ukraine, we see this country not only fighting against a nuclear aggressor, but fighting and and winning. And the potentiality that they, once again, might be this exception that, um, that nuclear weapons don't have value here, and that uh, that here could be a moment where where they can say that the NPT is still important, non-proliferation is still important, and that there is a way to use diplomacy and just the sure view, virtue of being right and being the you know the defenders of their territory and galvanizing uh, humanitarian and world support behind them, but that it might be another sort of shining example here. I, I'm curious if you can. If you can explain uh, what I thought was a very beautiful statement just a little bit more.
1: It does seem to me that a lot is riding on the outcome of this war uh, for the value of nuclear weapons as a tool of statecraft. So if Ukraine prevails, if it's somehow whatever prevailing might mean, right, whether restoring its borders fully or at least to the pre-February 24th state, if Ukraine prevails in that way, then clearly the lesson here is then you could have the world's biggest nuclear weapon arsenal and you could still lose in a conventional war to to a state that is committed, that, that has sort of right on its side. If Ukraine falls or if it's allowed to continue to bleed indefinitely, then the lesson might be you know, look, this country disarmed and nuclear power invaded it. It used uh, nuclear weapons to dissuade others to come into its defense and help. So that would be, I think, the lesson for, oh, that might be the lesson for other states seeking nuclear arms. But these lessons go beyond just, you know, Russia and the United States. And I'm sure North Korea is looking at the situation. But We also have to be humble in presuming we can anticipate all the different ways in which this history will be interpreted uh, 10, 20 years on. Another thing that I've been thinking quite a bit about is that you know if you're in the nuclear field especially here in the united states you spend so much time thinking about deterrence right and how deterrence works and whether you have secure second strike and what your strategy might be and how you make your you know deterrence threat credible and uh, and your deterrence secure and all of these things so we uh, imagery when we think about nuclear weapons goes to the standoff between two nuclear armed adversaries right We haven't spent nearly enough time thinking about how to prevent a nuclear use by a nuclear state against a non-nuclear state, right? There are some assurances that NPT uh, nuclear weapon states give to uh, non-nuclear weapon states kind of as general uh, general unilateral announcements or assurances to say, oh, we will not threaten to use nuclear weapons against you. A number of analysts and a number of people uh, throughout this conflict thought, well, what if Russia would somehow think resorting to the use of nuclear, of a tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine to force it to capitulate? As Graham Allison at the Kennedy School published an article saying, you know, not a, not a hugely likely, but not an implausible scenario that, you know, if Putin's plan on capturing Ukraine on, on invading Ukraine is not working as he had imagined, he might resort to kind of a demonstrative use of a technical nuclear weapon, do a Hiroshima and say, Hey, I, I got a Nagasaki here too, unless you guys signed a, an unconditional surrender. And you know, these old sins, they come to haunt because the only other time nuclear weapons were ever used was by a nuclear state against a non-nuclear state to force an unconditional surrender. And of course, the parallels end here, but uh, what I'm I'm saying is the prevention or deterrence of nuclear use against a non-nuclear armed state is not something we really spend very much time thinking about.
0: I think this episode highlights a number of things. For instance, just how fragile international security is today and how destabilized the world can become when people decide to break the norms and values a system is built on. It is not hyperbole to say that I believe, as Mariana said, that the future of nonproliferation is at stake in Ukraine today, not to mention the future of how the world views nuclear deterrence. Can a nuclear weapon's power use its deterrent as a shield to conquer indiscriminately? Is the thought of a nuclear weapon exploding on another country's soil in anger acceptable to our world community today? Or will the world say no? We cannot allow this dangerous future to proceed. Again, the way that countries interact with each other is based largely upon a system of norms and values, with nuclear weapons states holding an even wider swath of those than non-nuclear states. Like Mariana said... If we are not careful and fail to act with a clear strategy, we may be facing a future where threats of nuclear use by nuclear weapon states against those without them becomes a more commonplace occurrence. And in that dangerous potential future, the few guardrails that remain in protecting us from a global rush for new nuclear weapons programs would almost certainly crumble. Already, there are four nuclear powers that are not signatories to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. What if other regimes feel that the only way to defend themselves or secure their sovereignty in a world where the international norms and values have crumbled is to race for nuclear weapons? We all must work together to bring this ship back on course. Continuing to stray towards a world in which even one nuclear weapon is used in anger risks the livelihood of us all. Unfortunately, these questions and their very real potential impacts are happening in Eastern Europe as we speak. We may not know how things will turn out, but the simple truth is that we will be safer with fewer nuclear weapons, not more. The answer cannot be a return to the dangerous rhetoric and aggression of the past, as Mr. Putin would seem to have it. Instead, we must push for more limits on the world's most dangerous weapons and build a future where their use is not a bargaining chip between nations but remains as unthinkable a prospect as, say, releasing a new coronavirus on the world to solve a trade dispute, or melting an ice cap in order to drive up beachfront property sales in Las Vegas. This has been Nukes of Hazard, and signing off for the last time, I'm your host, Jeff Wilson. It's been a great three years, and I will miss creating these episodes for you as I move on to my next adventure. But fear not, Nukes of Hazard will live on under a new host, and you'll see new episodes in your feed soon. Stay tuned, and in the meantime, don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at Nukes of Hazard. That's at Nukes underscore of underscore hazard and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Arms Control Center. You can also email us at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. Thank you so much for listening. It has been a real pleasure getting to do this for all of you.